Okay, turn to James chapter 4, please. Continue to pray for one another. Those recovering from sickness, recovering from COVID, others with regular sickness. My daughters have the regular common cold, which doesn't affect their energy that much. Um, it gives them a lot of snot to work with. Joined with all the energy they have means snot everywhere. And Levin, Levin Betty, you guys know Levin Betty, you're still, you know, they're over COVID, but it kind of lingers. Some things linger. You know, Lev has a wicked cough, so keep praying for one another. Uh, as we get out of February here, hopefully spring helps things out. And turn to James 4 with me. That's where we'll be this morning, verses 1 through 10. Let's read these verses, and then we'll pray, and, and off we'll go. James 4. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray this morning before we talk about these verses. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us throughout all time, through your creation, through Christ, through the way that you have created us with consciences, the ability to comprehend or at least ask what might be out there and, and the explicit way you reveal yourself to us in your word. Be with us this morning as we seek to humble ourselves before your word, to submit to your word, to allow the spirit to encourage us and convict us from your word. Be with me as I share from these verses. Protect us from stray words, unhelpful words, but I pray that the Spirit would, uh, would be with me and be with the rest of us here. I pray that you'd be with those of us still fighting cold, sickness, flu, COVID, everything that comes along with that, all the, all the inconveniences, all the struggles, and that you'd continue to, to help us. Thank you for signs of spring. In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Okay, well, as we continue moving through the book of James, one of the things that has struck me is uh, this, this contrast between what I would call stability and instability. Lots of synonyms you could throw in there. But even as early as James 1, you remember these passages, I'm not going to read through all these passages, but begins talking about trials and asking for wisdom. And James says, if you're someone who asks for wisdom, but you do it without faith or without, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there's the word unstable. He goes on to talk about the kind of person who looks in the mirror sees things he needs to fix, looks away, instantly forgets those things. That's a double-minded man who doesn't understand how it works. Talks about uh, the process of sin or the effect of sin and how it doesn't just happen overnight, but temptation gives way to one thing, gives way to another. And before you know it, you're wrapped up in instability. Hearing the word versus doing the word. On through chapter 2. Chapter 3 gets really practical. Talks about the tongue in the first 12 verses. It's untamable. It's unnatural. It doesn't make any sense. Things in nature like streams and trees 
act according to their nature more than you do your tongue because you kiss your mom with that mouth and then you go and slander somebody with the same mouth. Instability. Last week, wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. I was in Sunday school, so I didn't hear this message, Carter, but I heard it was good. You see the same sorts of things as James talks about the opposite of what we want. Wisdom that is not from above, but that is demonic. Jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, verse 16 says, vile practice. And then it compares it to wisdom from above, which of course is pure and peaceable. Then we move into these verses in chapter 4, and we get the same sort of comparison. So with that in mind, with that stable versus unstable framework in mind, we read the first five verses of chapter four, which really address different areas where that's showing up in James's readers. Different areas where they're out of control. They don't have peace, they don't have stability, they don't have clear direction, and they're paying the consequences for it. And then in verses six through 10, we get what's more or less a solution. The first phrase in verse six mirrors the last phrase in verse 10. He gives more grace, I'm sorry, not the first phrase, all of verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then 7 through 9, there are ways that that happens, I would argue. And then in verse 10 again, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you because God gives grace to those. So we're going to look through these verses and hopefully be challenged by the ways that we're tempted to instability. One of the overriding themes, which you'll see is trust in yourself. Negative themes is trust in yourself. If you want an unstable life, look within yourself for direction. Try to find yourself or fulfill what you were meant to be or whatever that means. You know, these things people say, right? The answer lies within is kind of the idea. That will guarantee you instability because what's in you are things warring against each other, which is the first thing James talks about in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So what's implicit is that these people are fighting in one way or another. He's using hyperbole. He'll say in the next verse that you covet and don't have, so you murder. Probably hyperbole, right? They're probably not straight up slaughtering each other in church. Probably. So he's talking about fights and quarrels, whether it's, whether it's small things, big things, it's having an effect. And he says, isn't the reason that your passions are at war within you? Now that word passions is the same word at the end of verse 3. Okay, in verse 3 he says, you ask wrongly and you spend it on your passions. Okay, you spend your requests to God on your passions. So when he says in verse 1, the source of these quarrels and fights is the, are the passions within you, he's not really talking about things that you're passionate about or topics that really compel you. He's talking about pleasurable things that you want. And these things that you want are at war within you. Now you could take that one of two ways. Within you meaning within you, the church that I'm writing to, meaning this person has this passion, this person has another passion, and the result is that the passions are warring within you, or the option I like better, the one that the preacher shares last, is always the one that he likes best, <laughs> FYI, is that these are passions that are within each independent person themselves. I think this corroborates well with what Paul would write in, in Romans 7 and Romans 8 about you having members in your body, and you present your members as slaves to one thing or another, right? The theological teaching is that we were created or we are prone to slavery in a good way or we're prone to slavery, right? We are always presenting our members to someone 
or something, and that thing, Paul says, is your master. Whatever you present your members to is your master. Now combine that with teaching that we have about what's going on within us, okay? There's a spirit within us that's good, and there's a spirit within us that's bad. In fact, if you just glance down, uh, what verse is it here where God says, verse 5, do you suppose it's no purpose? Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, most would say, uh, I have the ESV and spirit is lowercase s. Perhaps your Bible has capital S. The original doesn't have capitalization or lowercase as we know it, right? So it's open to what he's talking about. I think he's talking about the spirit in every human being, saved or not, right? We were created with this aspect of us that was built or hardwired to worship God, to see creation and worship God. Now, bad news, sin means sin nature is in there fighting and will win unless you get a regenerated spirit, a reborn spirit from the Holy Spirit. So here, most of James readers sit with two really strong spirits. One preacher once illustrated it as uh, two hungry dogs inside of you. And the one you feed the most is the one that's gonna grow strongest. Oversimplistic, sure, but it gets the point across, which I think is true. There are these things warring within you, okay? You're fighting and you're quarreling because you all have pleasures in you. You want some good things? You want some bad things. And those things are really, really, really at war. They're at war. And it's implicit as we read on that the bad stuff is winning a bit more often than the good stuff is winning. And it's tearing them apart. This is instability, right? Uh, another preacher has said the most unhappy person in the world is a sinning Christian because you've got the part of you, the reborn part of you, that has made you morbidly aware of how wrong what you're doing is but you still do it, right? So the idea is you'd be better off doing the bad things without the spirit telling you that it's bad, okay? Which, you know, take it as far as you want to go. The point is it's misery. It's miserable instability to be at such war within yourselves that you're, you're torn, you're torn all over the place. He goes on, you desire and do not have that desire a reference to these passions. You want things and you don't have them. And when you don't have them, you murder. You covet, you want things, and when you can't get them, you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So he, these are just examples of ways in which this is manifesting itself, okay? You have a desire, the desire doesn't get satisfied. It's a bad desire and it doesn't get satisfied. Your reaction to that is telling, okay? Your reaction to that is, oh, I didn't get it? Well, I'll try harder, right? I'll start a fight. I'll slander that person. I'll kill that person hyperbolically, right? Then I'll get their stuff. It doesn't work out that way. But that's what the flesh tells us. And then he gets, at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, he talks about asking and receiving, this weird kind of setup. You don't have because you don't ask. And then in between verse 2 and 3, he kind of anticipates this irritating question, which is someone out there saying, what do you mean? We ask for stuff all the time. He's like, okay, give me a break. Verse 3, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So it, this, it reminds, I mean, it probably reminds you what it reminds me of, which is Jesus saying, uh, ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door will be opened to you. These weird verses that would be great if they were just like calculators, you know, or vending machines, like ask equals getting. And the, the general principle is, is that if God is your father, Jesus uses the example of a father, if a son asks him for bread, no dad is going to give his son a stone, right? 
That's, that's the idea when Jesus goes on to say, ask and you'll receive, right? So someone comes up and says, well, yeah, but what if the son asks for a Mercedes, right? Jesus probably would have said something like, well, okay, listen, like, it's, I'm not giving you a vending machine sort of thing. The principle is when you ask God things, he will give them to you. But if you ask him for things that only feed your flesh or that are only meant to pleasure you, of course God is not obligated by this verse to give you things that would be bad for you and everybody around you, right? That's what James is saying. You shouldn't even have to say it, right? You shouldn't have to say it. He says, all right, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, you want to spend stuff on your passions, and then really the the culminating indictment at the beginning of verse 4, you adulterous people, which reminds us of the way God talked about Israel in the Old Testament. You adulterous people. Don't you know, they didn't know this, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, He continues addressing this idea of warring things within you, right? There's things warring within you. And the idea is kind of, sort of, that you can kind of feed the flesh every once in a while. If you use the dog analogy, you can feed that dog, you know, two steaks a month. As long as you're feeding the other dog, ten steaks a month, right? You've got these things warring within you. You'll be fine as long as you do good stuff more often than you do bad stuff. I'm just saying, listen, you have, you have misunderstood. You have misunderstood how this works. You're adulterers, right? And it breaks down real quick when you apply that idea to something like marriage, right? You can enjoy your wife 10 times a month, and if you enjoy another woman one time a month, it's okay because the 10 outweighs the one, right? It doesn't work. It breaks down real quick. Okay, that's what James is saying. You're adulterers. It doesn't matter how much you choose the world over God. When you choose the world over God, you're moving categorically, not just in this moment. It's not just one thing you can confess and get rid of. You are categorically moving into the enemy of God camp. Okay, you're choosing to be an enemy of God. Verse five, this is a strange verse. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, and this is a strange verse because this this next quote is not actually in our Bible anywhere. So what did James mean by you've heard the scriptures say? Probably a a through time kind of cultural understanding of biblical teaching. There are phrases we say that are scriptural that we kind of equate to scripture that you couldn't find the quote for. Anyway, he says, don't you don't you know there's a reason that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So as I said, he's created us to worship him. There's the flesh, there's regeneration, He's jealous to you. He's jealous of you to the extent that he doesn't even want your time. He doesn't even want Monday through Saturday if you're going to give Sunday to someone else, right? It's not a you've you've got to make sure you give me more than you give the other the other spirit and we'll be good. He's jealous of you to the extent that he wants the whole thing. I am reminded of one of my favorite quotes from Mere Christianity, which I'm sure to butcher right now. But I think it's mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis argues, um, he uses the example of a, of a tree in Christian life. And it's like, if you're a tree, you've got a lot of different branches, a lot of different things about you. And we tend to think that God kind of wants to prune us every once in a while, or he wants like three-fourths of the tree, seven-eighths of the tree, maybe. It's like, nope, he wants the whole thing, the whole thing. 
He's a jealous, jealous, jealous God, crazy jealous. He doesn't want to lend you out to anything else. He doesn't want anything else to have your affection. And when you give your affection to other things, the result is instability. You're working outside of your nature. It goes back to what James says about the tongue. God gave you a spirit as a human being. He's given you, most of us, I pray, a new spirit, new life through the Holy Spirit, right? You're meant to do something. When you don't do what you're meant to do, things get jacked up pretty quickly, pretty quickly, okay? Instability. Now, verses 6 through 10 shift to God's gracious solution. But despite all these things I've said in verses 1 through 5, we could say despite all I've said in chapter, all of chapter 3 about the tongue and wisdom and how crazy you guys are. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, which hints at what these people need to do. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, he will free from you. flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, you're fighting and you're quarreling. And really, the diagnosis in verses 6 through 10 is that these are all things that would be solved if you would be humble, if you would humble yourself. Not to the other person, right? It's not like there's quarrels and fights among you, and if you were just more humble and willing to hear each other out, things would be fine. The problem isn't that their pride has set them at war against each other, though it has. The problem is that they need to submit themselves, verse 7, to God, to God himself. And then we get these at the end of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, these two reciprocating statements about the devil and God that really say the same thing about both of them. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Which means also, if you don't resist the devil, if you draw near to the devil, he will embrace you. He will draw near to you. For what God says to Cain, when he sees Cain is going the wrong way, he graciously says, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. You must overcome it, he says to Cain. We would say, resist. Resist the devil, he will free, flee from you. Draw near to God. And just like if you draw near to the devil, he will embrace you. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you as well. It's kind of an interesting way he flips the coin on those two, obviously, because we don't want to be, we don't want to draw near to the devil. Notice also, resisting the devil makes him flee, not because you're really strong or because he's really sensitive and being rejected will send him, send him away, you know, like, gosh. But because if you're resisting the devil, it means you're heading in whose direction? God's direction. And Satan can't stand the presence of God, right? So the idea is if these two spirits are within you, not, the, not that Satan's indwelling us, but if these two warring things are fighting for your affections, they hate each other. They both love you, but they hate each other, right? Which is why you can't have a strong relationship with the Lord when you're giving into sin, right? Because God can't get along with that. You can't have a strong relationship with sin when you're close to God because sin can't handle that either, okay? That's how, that's how the argument goes in those two verses. Now, we continue in verse 8. Cleanse your hands because you are sinners. You notice the phrase after the imperative explains the imperative. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Imagery is Old Testament priests. 
can't go into God's presence until he literally washed his hands. James speaking of figuratively cleansing your hands because you're sinners. Purify your hearts. What does he mean by that? Well, because you are double-minded, purify your hearts. Regain integrity. Make your heart someplace that isn't 90% spirit, 10% flesh. Purify it. Even 90-10 means you're double-minded. There's more than one thing in there. To cure that double-mindedness, purify your heart. Make it singularly focused and devoted. Verse 9, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. The idea being they're not, they are laughing. They need to mourn and weep over some of the things that they're doing. They're not convicted about it enough. Perhaps you've had, perhaps in your life you have had a sort of convicting experience that has brought you to, if not tears, just this feeling that you realize you've been doing something a certain way or something has been characterizing you for so long that you mourn. You mourn for the damage that it's done. Now that you realize what's going on, you mourn that it went on as long as it did. That's what James wants for his readers. Don't laugh about it anymore. I'd like to see you crying. It reminds us of the end of Psalm 51 where David repents of his, of his sin with Bathsheba and murder, and at the end he says, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. I'm in all kinds of trouble. I sinned against you. You could curse me forever and you'd have a right to do it, but I know this one thing about you. You accept humility. You accept brokenhearted humility, which is what verse 10 says again. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. One of the things I try to teach students as best I can is the value of teachability. So for example, I'll tell freshmen coming into teacher ed, you might not be the best student, you might be unorganized and lazy and, you know, terrible at all these things. That would all be fine if you had this one really, really good quality, teachability. If you're teachable, we can work with you. I can work with you. If you're not teachable and you get straight A's, you are going to be a thorn in my side for four years. I don't say it that way to them. Don't spread that. Don't spread that too far. But it makes sense. It makes sense, okay? Humility and teachability is what we want. Now, I want to give a few practical applications, if I can, before we close here, about, about ways that I think this creeps into my life for what it's work. Uh, one, approach to the Bible. I think we tend to, I certainly tend to, think that the Bible's about me. So in other words, you go to read your Bible in the morning and you want to learn something about yourself. Maybe, maybe it's, it's a noble thing, right? You want to learn why you've been stressed so much lately or you want to know why you tend to keep doing this thing or something like that and you think you do your devos like a good Christian and you'll come away feeling pretty good and then you'll be able to go about your day and you know that's what growth in the Lord is. But that's, that's a little bit off in the sense that humbly submitting yourselves to God, as James tells his readers to do, submit yourselves therefore to God, means accepting that the Bible, for example, is not really about us, right? And so when you approach the scripture, I think an encouraging application is when you approach the scripture, don't go expecting to figure something out about you, okay? The Bible is not, not your psychiatrist. You don't go to it so that it can ask you a whole bunch of introspective questions to help you learn more about yourself. Learning more about yourself is not the solution. You go to learn more about God, right? The person of the Bible. 
that's, that's the idea, and submitting yourself to it, I think, tends to look more like that. The people I know, the mature people I know, mature, encouraging believers, don't talk about themselves much, and even when they talk about the Word, they, don't talk, they, they talk about it in a way that shows that they're in wonder and awe about the person they're getting to know and what they learned about Him in the Word, okay? I get excited when I find things in the Word that, explains thing, that explain to me things about me. Like, oh, that's why I was doing that. And of course the Word does that, but I'm all too happy to get that information and not nearly motiva- motivated enough uh, to learn more about God. The other piece of application I would encourage, encourage you to use is the question of stability. Maybe the question is, where is your instability? Now I understand our culture is one in which, A, we can look really, really good. It's really easy to make ourselves look quite stable. You all look perfectly stable right now. You can look at literally every one of your faces and you all look fine. And I'm sure I look fine too. That didn't I'm sure I look fine too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for chuckling a little bit, Chad. It made me feel comfortable just calling myself out on it. Um, I'm sure I look fine too. It's a funny thing to say. But, but, the question is, where is your instability? Is it stress? Is it the way you're treating a particular person or people in general? Is it in a, in a, is it in a particular relationship? Does it have to do with a particular topic that just triggers you every single time without fail? Where is it that you don't experience the calm, peace? I'm looking at the last, the last verses of chapter 3. Wisdom from above, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. What areas of your life do you need those things in? And if you can kind of narrow that down, will help you to give over to the Lord, to, to humble yourself before the Lord in that area. Understand the problem is you, okay? The, pro- the reason you're stressed isn't because of your circumstances. It might be helping, but the problem's inside of you. It's these pa- pleasures and passions inside of you trying to fight for attention. Those are my encouragements to you. This concept will continue to be developed as we continue to move through James chapter 4. But let's pray for now. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for Christ. Really, the only good, perfect picture we have of a human life lived in perfect stability. The circumstances that, that hit Christ were obviously worse than any we will face emotionally, intellectually, physically, and yet... Our pioneer, the author of our salvation, exemplified to us what it looks like to depend on you in his humanity, to depend on the Spirit's power, to depend on prayer to you, time in Scripture. And so we pray that he would continue to be an encouragement to us. We pray that this passage would be an encouragement to us, an exhortation to look, uh, look at our lives and what what is symptomatic of instability, a double-minded life that we're maybe just hearing certain things and not doing those things. And we're thankful that the book of James gives us many solutions, one of which is humility. Give us the strength to humble ourselves before you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.